Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and of all the F. Murrays out there, F. Murray Abraham is my favorite. That was a weak one. <laughs> I just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to say it. Uh, you got a better F. Murray? Uh, no, I mean, your, uh, your tag there was not your best work, but that's okay. Uh, well, um, I'm just saying he's of all the F. Murrays. That's my favorite F. Murray. Yeah, he's pretty good. And we're going to talk more about him because in this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we are talking about the best picture Oscar winner, which is Amadeus starring F. Murray Abraham, also an Oscar winner who won Best Actor for this film, which is a biopic of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but really it's about Antonio Salieri, the character played by F. Murray Abraham, and it's uh, about the rivalry between these two composers and uh, how it sort of consumed Salieri, his jealousy of Mozart, played by Tom Hulse. Yes, and as director Milos Forman and uh, writer Peter Schaefer said, it's more of a fantasia on the theme of Mozart and Salieri, Josh, uh, if you really want to go deep. But I know you like to keep it on the surface. Yeah, well, that's true. It's uh, We could call it a biopic, but it certainly takes a lot of liberties with history, uh, as some people have complained about. But I think that's one of the interesting things about it. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Of course, it won Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, it was a huge sensation awards-wise. It was nominated for 11 total Oscars and won eight of them, including Best Picture, Best Actor for F. Murray Abraham, Best Director for Milos Forman, Best Adapted Screenplay for Peter Schaefer, and Best Costume Design, Best Art Direction, Best Makeup, and Best Sound. A lot of the, the technical stuff as well, which is pretty astonishing in this film, also was nominated for six Golden Globes and won there, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. And it was a pretty big success box office-wise, too. It grossed $90 million worldwide on its budget of only $18 million. And, you know, that's not bad for a movie that uh, closes in on three hours and is about Mozart. So, you know, it's it's not surprising, I think, we'll talk about that this is a kind of a crowd-pleasing movie in a way. but you know, still not necessarily the thing that you most expect to be a huge hit. Uh, and the soundtrack album won a Grammy for best classical album, which, uh, I mean, you know, it's Mozart. How can you not give him a Grammy? Well, Josh, there's a lot to fill in there. It has one of the best connect ratios ever as far as nominations and then awards. It was nominated overall for 53 awards you know, on various award show, it won 40 of them. That's a 75% ratio. Wow. I, uh, when you mentioned all the Oscars it won, uh, it also run a director's guild of America award for Milos. And he's one of the few directors who has like two best pictures, two best director awards, you know, like he had two golden globes for best director. Like he's a heavy hitter, man. And then that soundtrack also sold 6.5 million albums, which is pretty, pretty awesome for a uh, classical music soundtrack, I'd say. Yeah, that's a huge number for a classical album. Um, and I think that speaks to how this movie reached a wide audience beyond just people who would be inclined to like Mozart or like classical music. And yeah, that's also what you're talking about Milos Forman. Like he was not a very prolific director. I think he was, I was looking and he made like 12 films in 42 years over the course of his whole career. So that's not a huge number. And to have two of those end up with Best Picture um, is quite impressive. So good, right. good for him. And the other one is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, if anyone's wondering. I thought I saw this, Josh, um, when you were mentioning the Oscars. One of the uh, awards it didn't win, which was Best Original Music Score, which was uh, Maurice Jarre for A Passage to India. And his quote uh, when he got the Oscar was, I was lucky Mozart was not eligible this year. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, obviously, this this movie is using all existing music by, you know, Mozart, as well as uh, some by Salieri, also not eligible for an Oscar in yeah. 1984. And let me just add, 
The uh, the Mozart music was recorded by Neville Mariner and the Academy of St. Martin's and the Field Orchestra, who are the most recorded orchestra and conductor team ever. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's pretty good music. Not bad. That, Mo- <laughs> that Mozart guy kind of, yeah, he knew what he was doing. You're going to smash the like button on uh, the Mozart. Is that what you're yeah. saying? So. Yeah, I'll give him a, I'll give him a thumbs up. Why not? Cool. Add it to your playlist, maybe. Yes. Add Mozart to my bangers of 1984 playlist. <laughs> I mean, that music, and we'll get into it, but it, it is um, so beautifully overwhelming. It really, really, you know, when we talk about how music uh, enhances the mood of a movie, man, just beautiful. Yes. And it's interesting. I mean, in this season, we've been talking about so many movies where music is important and pretty much all of them are it, the music is new. It's pop music from 1984. And obviously that's not what's going on here at all. But the music here is just as essential as any of the other music that we've talked about in other movies this season. I think so. I, it, yeah, it's I mean, it's its own character and it's also a driver of the other characters. That is true. Uh, This movie was also generally very well-reviewed by critics. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. And in his review, Roger Ebert said, Milos Forman's Amadeus is one of the riskiest gambles a filmmaker has taken in a long time. A lavish movie about Mozart that dares to be anarchic and saucy, and yet still earns the importance of tragedy. This movie is nothing like the dreary educational portraits we're used to seeing about the great composers, who come across as cobwebbed profundities weighed down with the burden of genius. This is Mozart as an 18th century Bruce Springsteen. And yet, here is the genius of the movie. There is nothing cheap or unworthy about the approach. So I wanted Thanks to make sure that, to get the Springsteen, yes, to get the Springsteen <laughs> reference. I think that's probably the second time you've quoted. A, it might even be Ebert who's re, uh, referenced Springsteen. But you know, the the point is there is he was a huge rock star, right, back in the day, um, right. Mozart and um, Ebert. Ebert, you're right. He was saucy, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> but I think it's important. You know, one reason it could have been Springsteen. It could have been any of those pop stars. This, you know, Milos Forman talked about how this movie came out at the height of MTV. And we've already talked about, you know, some of these other movies with these synth pop soundtracks. And, you know, 83 was Flashdance, 84 was Footloose. So this is going in a completely different direction, but showing this guy as a real rock star. And uh, lastly, Ebert had it as number one on his list for best movies in 1984. Siskel had it at number two. Yeah, they were both big fans. And it was interesting to hear them discuss it. They both loved it, but they had kind of different reasons for it. And Siskel talked a lot about how he thought this was one of the best representations of the process of creativity, how movies have trouble with that. But you could really get the sense of of the way that Mozart and and I suppose Salieri a bit too were, uh, were creating their artistic works. And uh, Ebert was more about um, I think the the character work in in the film, but uh, they agreed that it was great. Obviously, and do you lean either way on that argument? I kind of am with more with Ebert on that. I mean, I think Siskel isn't wrong that it it shows the process of creation well. But to me, what's fascinating about this movie is the is the characters and is the expression of that jealousy and uh, insecurity that Salieri has. Um, and that could be about any kind of creativity. It could be about a famous composer like Mozart, or it could be about a fictional character. But just the way that that's expressed, I think, is uh, an interesting interplay. So, but they're both uh, they both have uh, good points about it. I and and that, that's a credit to Peter Schaefer when uh, when I was reading about all the, like the you know historians were like this is inaccurate. Uh, you know, it's an emotional story. You're talking about talking about the emotions and that jealousy permeates every action that Salieri has in this movie. And it was a brilliant way to tell the story. Right. Yeah. I'm not particularly concerned about whether everything in this movie is historically accurate. And I don't think that Milos Forman and Peter Schaefer were either. But um, speaking of Peter Schaefer, it was interesting to me how many of the reviews emphasized the play and how good and how popular and successful the play was, because I feel like this movie has so far overshadowed that play that I didn't even remember the play existed. But a lot of the reviews reference that. So the play is from 1971. It won the Tony for best play in ni- or 1979. It won the play a uh, best play Tony in 1981. 
Jane Seymour, Ian McKellen, and Tim Curry were the stars of it at that time. But going further back, Josh, uh, it's originally based on a short play by Alexander Pushkin in 1830 called Mozart and Salieri. And that led to an opera by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov in 1897, which led to a silent film in 1917 by Viktor Cherzhansky. And then we got Peter Schaefer and then this movie. So it's a really talk about an adapted piece of work. Pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a whole tradition there. And I think that is another thing that makes the the complaints about the historical accuracy kind of pointless. It's like this is a this is now a story with its own long life that is divorced from that historical context. The idea of Salieri and Mozart as these rivals is its whole own thing that has been expressed in multiple different works as you're talking about. But I do think at the same time, this movie has become like the definitive version of that to the point where people don't really remember the play. But it was mentioned a lot. Uh, Peter Travers in People Magazine said, director Milos Forman, riding on waves of Mozart's incomparable music, makes something undeniably thrilling out of Peter Schaefer's 1980 Broadway smash. But admirers of the show, about a fictional battle between God and 18th century Italian composer Antonio Salieri over a prodigy named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, must be prepared to make some adjustments for the film version. The play, turning on the conflict between Salieri's mediocrity and Mozart's then unrecognized genius, was faster, funnier, and innately more theatrical. Schaefer hasn't simply adapted his work for the screen, he has rigorously rethought it. And obviously, I don't think, I mean, I certainly haven't seen the stage version, and I I assume, Jason, that you haven't either, so we can't necessarily comment on that. But to me, this did not come across as something that was adapted from a play. I mean, it was so expansive that I had a hard time imagining how this would work on stage. I would love to see it. I mean, and it seems right now would be a good time to you know, for someone to mount it. You know, Peter Schaefer in 1975 wrote Equus, which which had a comeback a few years ago with Daniel Radcliffe. And so he's a major figure as far as playwrights go. But I agree with you. I And I think part of that is that Milos Forman has had a background in Czech theater, Czech documentary and Czech fictional filmmaking. Um, and we've talked about the Czech New Wave on our Kolya episode. So I think they really hunkered down and made this movie its own entity. Yeah, I I agree. And um, again, not having seen that stage version, I don't know what was changed, but whatever was changed, I think it was the smart move because this this feels like an epic movie. It doesn't feel like a stage production, and I don't think it should feel like a stage production. And Josh, one thing you and I were talking about was it's two. the version we saw was two hours and 40 minutes. Dave saw the director's cut, which was the only thing available for a while, which was three hours. Now, Josh, you and I thought those two hours and 40 minutes, that was a short two hours and 40 minutes. It kept rolling and it was pretty delightful to watch. Dave, what about the three hour version? Yeah, it never felt like three hours. It's such a a quick moving movie and so much like fun from beginning to end, even though people are just so, uh, you know, there's such heavy, you know, jealousy between them. Uh, It's just so much fun to watch them. Yeah, I mean, I watching the the original cut, I didn't feel like I would have wanted it to be 20 minutes longer, but certainly that version is paced very well and it never felt like, oh my God, this is such a long movie. So to say that the play is faster, I'm not sure exactly what that is. And maybe it's literally shorter, I don't know. Um, but I don't think I would have wanted this to be like more fast paced necessarily. I think that pacing is just right. I mean, you know, obviously... Spoiler alert, I really like this movie, but I think, I think, you know, I mean, they didn't make too many mistakes in this one. They kind of got everything right, it feels like. Yeah, I I think so, too. I mean, this seems like a very successful adaptation. Uh, Not every critic was super into it. Todd McCarthy in Variety was a bit more critical. He said, on a production level and as an evocation of a time and place, Amadeus is loaded with pleasures the greatest of which derive from the on-location filming in Prague, the most 18th century of all European cities. With great material and themes to work with, and such top talent involved, the film nevertheless arrives as a disappointment. Although Peter Schaefer adapted his own outstanding play for the screen, the stature and power the work possessed on stage has been noticeably diminished, and Milos Forman's handling is perhaps too naturalistic for what was conceived as a highly stylized piece. 
Essential drama remains sufficiently potent to absorb audience interest, and many who never saw it live may be greatly impressed. Strong biz looms in major city first runs, but length and heavy dose of classical music mute chances for a wide-scale breakout. So I, I, I was like quoting the reviews that are very, very wrong about how well this movie is, <laughs> movies are going to do. Um, right. So. It had a budget of 18 and grossed 90 million and, you know, on yeah. and on and on. So um, and having not seen it, I guess really all we can talk about uh, from that review, having not seen the play is the naturalistic look, which I guess I could see the idea of maybe wanting more like swooping movements. But overall, I thought, um, you know, Milos and his collaborator, Mislav Andrzejczyk, who is his director of photography on a lot of things. I think they did a phenomenal job. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's more naturalistic than a stage version. I mean, simply by just the fact that it was shot in real locations. But to me, this is still a quite a stylized movie. And again, I think whether we're talking about historical accuracy or the way just things are presented, like I wasn't concerned about it being super realistic and I didn't necessarily think that it was completely realistic and that's okay. I mean, if nothing else, the conscious decision to cast this movie set in 18th century Vienna with American actors using their American accents, that's stylization right there. And, you know, often speaking in a kind of an anachronistic modern way, um, I mean, that's the opposite of naturalistic. Yeah. Take that, McCarthy. Yeah, screw you. <laughs> um, so, Jason, had you ever uh, had you seen this movie before? No, as I mentioned in our last episode, I had never seen it. And you know, Josh, we watch we all watch a lot of movies, and sometimes we see good ones that are long, and sometimes we got to kind of trudge through some of these longer ones. But this, as I said, like I was the whole way, I was just fascinated and riveted, and you know, just like. It's so beautiful to look at. And the fact that it executes the story and the performance on the level that's deserving of the music, just brilliant, a brilliant film. Yeah, it's it's quite good. And I, I had seen it before. And, and as we talked about, uh, I was trying to remember because the, that longer director's cut version is is the only one that's readily available. Like you really have to work to find that older version as we did. But I probably wouldn't have done that. Uh, back when I first saw this movie, it was quite a few years ago. And I remember for some reason being over at my mom's house for some holiday or something. And I don't know why we decided that this was the movie to watch as a family on some holiday. It's a very strange choice. Yeah. Um, but but I remember watching it at my mom's and enjoying it and thoroughly enjoying it. But I, I can't recall which version it was. Um, and I didn't remember all the details coming back to it this time. But I did, definitely remembered liking it. Uh, when I saw it then and uh, and liking it again. So, uh, Dave, had you previously seen it after uh, before watching the longer version this time? I have this vivid memory of them showing this to us in high school for some reason. And I don't know if it was a history class or what, uh, or if it was even the whole film or not, because it seems like it would be a long film to show in class. But I feel like I watched it literally in high school. Uh, but that was the last time well, until now. Dave, if you watched it in high school, I wonder if you saw the original cut that Josh was saying was so hard to find for so long because that's like the PG cut and the version mm -hmm. you watched had a uh, nude scene, um, yeah. which I don't think you could show in high school. Probably not. Yeah. Well, that, that director's cut didn't exist until 2002. So I assume Dave, that was uh, after you were, had graduated from high school. Y that you're assuming correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so you probably saw that older version. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that this is something, I mean, nude scene aside, that they would show in high schools because it's the kind of thing that's like broadly educational, but also like, you know, entertaining enough that it might not completely bore teenagers. Um, right. Well, I don't know. It probably would bore some teenagers, but <laughs> <laughs> less so than like a dry documentary about Mozart or something like that. I, I you know, one thing to point out again, we're talking about like historical inaccuracies, this, that I think emotionally it captured so much. I could see teenagers watch this and say like, oh, I wanted to learn more about the music or more about Mozart. And I think that's where it really succeeds. Forget what's accurate and inaccurate. It captures the emotional uh, spirit of uh, the creative journey so well. 
It does. It definitely does. And we will talk more about that when we return and get into our general thoughts on Amadeus. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about Best Picture winner Amadeus. And I think this is the kind of movie that you expect might be stuffy and dull. I mean, it's a multi-Oscar winner. It's a period piece about a classical composer. It's nearly three hours long. And yet we're all saying, this is a really entertaining movie. It's fun. It's zippy at two hours and 40 minutes. It's saucy, as Mr. Roger Ebert said. And it just, like I said, it worked on every level, whether it was technical, emotional performance, and of course the music. But yeah, you get into it within the first five minutes. You see Salieri uh, attempting to commit suicide and claiming that he murdered Mozart. And then we kind of go back to the beginning of you know, kind of his journey, but really more Mozart's journey and uh, how he ends up in the court of Vienna with uh, Emperor Joseph II and just kind of his journey as like this bad boy of music at the time. I won't call it classical because I think that then it was just opera, you know, and yeah, music, cla so. classical music then would have been like uh, Gregorian chanting or something like that, I guess um, <laughs> that was. But yeah, he was obviously he was the, the rock star or pop star of the moment. That was the music that average people would enjoy listening to. And he would have been a known star of that. Um, and I think that's why the movie, it captures that it, it equates him in a lot of ways with what pop stars were or would have been in 1984. I mean, a lot of reviews, I didn't quote it anywhere, but a lot of reviews I saw were seemingly shocked by the vaguely pink wigs that Mozart wears at certain points in this movie. And whether that's a historically accurate or not, I think that is a small nod to the sort of fashion or rebelliousness or whatever that you would see in, in rock stars or punk musicians or whatever in 1984. And I mean, and now too. I'd wear a pink wig right now if you had one for me. I bet it would look good on you, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it would it would work. You could uh, be like Mozart in that uh, great scene where he's trying on the different wigs and says he wishes he had three heads because he loves them all. <laughs> right. Well, you know, as you mentioned, it won best makeup. But to go along with that, the costume design, I noted down Theodore Pistek, who was the costume designer. Like, honestly, these are... I, I don't think I've ever seen better period costumes. And I don't know if like he kind of punk rocked them out a little bit, but like Mozart as this like kind of fop, like um, dressing just so far beyond everyone else. I was like, I want to wear these clothes, you know, <laughs> pretty incredible. They were, they were beautiful and like uh, electric and, you know, just kind of uh, flamboyant and bombastic all at the same time. But they looked like they were of that time period. I thought, uh, as good a costume design as I've ever seen. Yeah, it's great. And I think we think of period movies and you just kind of assume that all the costumes kind of look the same. All the characters are going to dress in the same way. But the costumes in this movie give you a, a really strong sense of the difference between Mozart and Salieri and the difference between Mozart and these uh, aristocratic people that he's working for and just in the way that they dress, which presumably would be the way that that would really go, that not everyone is dressing in exactly the same way. So I agree. Yeah, the costume design is great. Makeup, hair, all of it is fantastic. So so really, Josh, what we're talking about here is Salieri is this very famous composer. He's the official composer of the King's Court of the Emperor Joseph II. And um, he mentions uh, in the beginning that at one point he was the most famous composer in all of Vienna, right? And uh, his music over time just uh, lost favor and Mozart's gained favor. And this was like, you know, over just a 50-year period of time. But Salieri, from the first time he heard Mozart, was fascinated by him because it, he was the best composer he's ever seen. He, you know, he he basically was the hand of God, right? Like God was playing music through Mozart and Salieri wanted to be a part of that and feel that genius and kind of be able to be recognized for that. And every time he couldn't understand why God would choose Mozart, who was a carouser and, you know, uh, you know, a partier and a, maybe a womanizer, all these different things. Right. And um, every time that Salieri 
kind of tried to gain favor. Uh, it didn't work, and so he t- he decided to take up a war against Jesus by taking up a war against Mozart. Very vicious tactics. Yeah, but of course, ultimately, the war that Salieri fights only hurts himself. Um, I mean, he blames himself for Mozart's death, and the movie kind of frames it in a way that that shows him deliberately harassing Mozart. But he's certainly not literally responsible, uh, even in the context of the movie. Obviously, certainly not in reality, when Mo- where Mozart died of some disease that hasn't been identified because, you know, medical science was not as strong in the 18th century. But certainly he wasn't killed by Salieri in reality or even in the movie. And I think that is what's so fascinating about the movie is that this, this toxic jealousy that Salieri has only makes his own life worse. It doesn't make him a better composer. It doesn't make him more famous. And it doesn't actually tear down Mozart or reduce Mozart's genius. All it does is make Salieri into this bitter, tortured man who 30 years after Mozart has died is still consumed with that same jealousy. In the movie, he hurts him financially by kind of you know, spreading rumors, hurting his reputation. In the three-hour cut that Dave saw, there's a scene where he goes to Emperor Joseph II and tells him he can't have students because he'll, I believe he used the word, molests the students, you know, so. And he also used his influence to take some of Mozart's operas, which were, uh, as he said, genius, and have them close early in Vienna. He said, you know, at one point, I forget which opera he was talking about, but he's like, it was most brilliant thing I've ever seen. I made sure it closed in five performances, but secretly I went to all five of them. Right. And that that's Don Giovanni, I think, that he's talking about that opera. So, right, he does do what he can to harm Mozart professionally, but what he really cares about is the music itself, is the genius of Mozart. And no matter what he does, that genius persists. And everything that Mozart composes is brilliant. And Salieri sees how brilliant it is. So, I mean, I think, yes, you're right. He does, he does harm Mozart. But I think ultimately the theme of the movie is how much he harms himself more so. And even though he outlives Mozart for so long, his life is just diminished by that. Right. He calls him saying, what, the patron saint of mediocrity? And he forgives all the other people <laughs> who are mediocre. Um, but Dave, in the version you saw, what you know, um, there's that scene where uh, Constance goes to visit him, and it, it's like a seduction of sorts. What is she? Uh, can you explain that scene because it's not in the movie that we saw? Well, it seems that uh, he's basically taken to the idea of of making her think, at least, that Mozart's not going to get the gig without her sleeping with him. Okay, the gig and, of uh, the gig of being the private teacher to Princess Catherine, and right. she needs to go and sleep with Salieri to to you know make sure Mozart gets that job, which they yeah, need because and, they're always financially hampered. Yeah, and it's very you know dark and creepy, especially by today's standards. And uh, but then as soon as as she starts to undress and all that, he immediately calls for her to be sent away. Like it, it seems like is kind of, you know, all just like a a trick from the get go. Like he wasn't planning on doing it. So it's kind of more of that manipulation mind control that he's doing with Mozart and now doing with his wife. And the scene after is kind of her breaking down and not apologizing, but telling Mozart how much she loves him and that she wants to be with him. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I mean, we covered I, most of those 20 minutes, Josh. There you go. We just were just <laughs> going to describe go. each, each additional scene. Well, um, it's kind of important because, you know, wh- why did they cut these scenes? And I mean, obviously, I don't think it affected the emotional resonance, but there was a reason they were in there to begin with. Well, right. I mean, to me, just hearing the description of that scene, it seems like maybe it's a little too dark or it's taking Salieri in the direction of being evil. And I think what's fascinating about Salieri is that he's not evil or or malicious even really. He's just, he's pathologically insecure and self-loathing. And that's what makes him interesting as a character. So I think if he tips over into becoming like a villain, that harms the movie. So, you know, to me, that sounds like something that was probably 
rightfully cut, even if it was maybe cut for ratings purposes because it's too, you know, if it's an, an implied um, threat of rape or something like that, you can't have that in a PG rated movie, uh, just like they had to cut out the nude scene. Um, but either I don't way, think there was, I don't think there was a rape element. I think it was more of a manipulation element. But either way, you could, you could see that that might be a scene that, that bumped it past the PG rating that they would have sure. for that reason. Well, just the nudity alone, I think would have right. done that. So, yeah. so uh, to me, again, I feel like watching the, the original cut, it, it doesn't seem to me like anything is missing. It didn't feel like I wanted it to be longer. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it's already long and it didn't feel like it was too long. So I just think it's a shame. I mean, regardless of whether that director's cut is good and obviously Dave really enjoyed it and people really enjoy it. And I'm sure it, it, it's good, but the way that it's, it's so it's, it's overtaken the original version where it's, as we discovered, difficult to acquire that original version. You can only get it on an out of print DVD. There's no streaming or digital rental or even recent DVD or Blu-ray release that features that original cut. That's just a shame. Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of a, a superfluous, you know, that's not about the movie itself, but about the way that these things are handled by movie studios. What did you guys think, um, of the staging of all the Mozart operas? I thought that was obviously one of the strengths of this film. Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, Twyla, Twyla Tharp, who is a renowned uh, choreographer and uh, opera and dance director, is the one responsible for that. And it's beautiful. I mean, I think and you have to have that because it's not just the music. You have to get that full sense of Mozart's genius, which was not just the music. It was the creation of these operas, which are full narrative productions with stage elements and characters and costumes and all of that. And he's responsible for that stuff too, not just for the music. So yeah, I think you can get a sense from that how big and uh, enveloping and fascinating these spectacles are or were and how they would draw in those audiences. So yeah, I think it's really well done. Yeah. So the three we saw were The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, as you mentioned, and The Magic Flute. Dave, what did you think from a, you know, obviously you're the musician of the group. No offense to you, Josh, lead singer of Anime in high school. <laughs> oh, thanks for referencing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, classical isn't really my thing, but I just thought that they were just so beautifully done. And I know uh, the theatrical experience doesn't mean as much to you, Jason, as it does to me, but I would love to see this movie in like an IMAX. I, I agree. I agree with you. Don't, I, and look, I, I'm just accepting that we are where we are and where we're yes. one that's not available this time. And two, we're not moving in that direction, it seems like. But yes, yes. seeing that on the big screen would probably take your breath away yeah. two of the other interesting elements musically i thought were when we saw kind of the uh opera performed for like a uh what would you call it like an english english crowd of more middle class as opposed to like the royal class josh would you say and yeah i mean they're not none of them are english because this is they're all uh right Austrian. viennese viennese i meant um but a more um a more working class crowd is what I meant, not English. I right. don't know why I said that. But um, and just how they loved it and roared with it and how they all responded to it. And even Mozart was so delighted to see that even though it was made comedic, um, which might not have been his intention, they were they got it. They got a lot of what he was going for. And the last thing I wanted to mention musically, which I think to me is the best scene in the whole movie, is when Mozart is dying and Salieri says, you know, I'll help you finish this last piece. Let's stay up all night. And you see the genius of Mozart figuring it out in his head. And so, and like, you're hearing the sounds of Mozart, which is so good. That's such a good filmmaking technique. You're hearing what he's envisioning in his head and Salieri can't keep up. And he's like, he's like, do you get it? And he's like, no, I wait, I have to, you know, and Salieri is doing his best to keep up. And when he finally gets it, it's just yet another brilliant moment of yes this is why he's mozart and i'm salieri right and you really you really get a sense in that scene of how far beyond salieri mozart is and how far beyond mm -hmm. anybody mozart is or would have been um because it's not like salieri is dumb or is not educated musically or doesn't understand this stuff but mozart is just so far beyond him and i think that's actually the scene that gene siskel is, was talking about on Siskel and Ebert when he talks about 
the way that this movie represents the process of creation better than almost any other movie. Um, and and you're right, the way that that you you hear as in we in the audience hear what Mozart is kind of hearing in his head, and he describes, oh, it's doing this and it's doing this, and then we hear it and we understand how brilliantly this kind of just like springs from his mind and then we hear it fully realized and that's how it already was in his in his mind so that is um that is a great musical scene and i think going back to what you were saying about the working class audience for the magic flute versus the sort of uh, aristocratic audience for don giovanni the idea that there was this divide between you know he's writing the magic flute not for a the uh, aristocratic royal patron, but just for this actor who hires him and is going to give him 50% of the ticket sales. And that is seen as kind of slumming it. Of course, that distinction, you know, we don't look back and think, oh, this, this was Mozart's version of like, uh, you know, when he got hired to write a Fast and Furious movie or something as opposed to his artistic creation or whatever. It's all Mozart, uh, the way that we look at it now. Um, and that distinction no longer matters. But it was a big deal, obviously, to the people at the time. And Josh, I want to cover both of the points that you were working on there, too. Going back again to the scene we talked about with the creation of the music and Salieri kind of transcribing it. You brought up a good point about like that Salieri character is a lot more complex than I'm a bad guy and I must get him because he's better than me. Like, I think that's one of the genius things of this movie is like how complex that character is. And he's an asshole to Mozart and Mozart's like apologizing to him because he didn't think like, uh, I don't think you liked my music or me. And, but at the same time, Salieri is trying to help him finish this piece because he knows just how brilliant he is. And so you're seeing the good and the bad in this character all at once. And it, and it works so well of the, uh, what's it called? The magic flute. Is that right, Josh? Yes. The, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to mention the, uh, the librettist in that was played by, uh, Emmanuel Schickender, uh, who on the original stage play of, of Amadeus played, uh, played Mozart in London. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Is that who that is? Or is it Simon Callow who plays that part? I read it as Emmanuel Schickender, but maybe okay. you're, I, I thought I Simon looking... Callow played, uh, Salieri. Oh, so he played Salieri. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think you're I think so. Right. But, but I was thinking Simon Callow played the librettist of uh, of the Magic Flute. But uh, we don't know what we're talking about. So let's just. Uh, <laughs> hey, we did the best we could with classical music, guys. Come on. No, I'm at J- Jason Emmanuel Schikander is the name of the character. Emmanuel Schikander played by Simon Callow. There you go. <laughs> Definitely, he lived in the 18th century and was not alive to play uh, Salieri or Mozart in hey, Peter man, Schaefer's Hey, man, I read it backwards. It happens. No, it happens, it's all right. It's know, all right. So. But the point is there, that Simon Callow does a good job in that role and was someone who had appeared in the stage production. Um, and I know you love, Jason, you love the alternate casting. And I think there were a number of people from the stage productions who were considered for roles in the movie, but ultimately they didn't go with um, any of those people. Well, we should beep, 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 break in with our alternate casting. We haven't even, and it'll be a perfect uh, springboard to get into the man who actually played Mozart. Who right, we, we, yeah, we got to talk yet. about the performances, yes. Yes, yeah, so the people who were up for playing Mozart included David Bowie, Mikhail Baryshnikov, Mark Hamill, who did play him on uh, in Broadway at one point, and Kenneth Branagh, who I, of all of them, I thought would have been the most interesting choice. Yeah, I think Branagh could have pulled it off. Um, but again, I like him. I mentioned here that Milos Forman made that specific decision to cast this all with American actors. And it gives it that weird modern feel that I think is what he's going for. Yeah. I mean, David Bowie obviously makes sense because, you know, he is that type of rock star. But uh, what did you think of uh, Tom Hulse? 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 who uh, is kind of gone down into film lore. Uh, I mean, he's good. And I think he's known mainly just for this. And he was in Animal House before this. And I think just the idea of casting the guy who's known for being in Animal House as Mozart is part of that whole approach that Milos Forman is taking. And I mean, Mozart is meant to be kind of annoying in this movie. I mean, he has this ridiculous laugh, which I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that is historically accurate or not, I have no idea, but um, it's a very distinctive and certainly something that Tom Hulse pulls off and you are annoyed by it, but it's also 
I mean, it's just so entertaining to see this guy and he's so goofy and ridiculous. I mean, you can see his genius, but you can also see like he's a person who has a dumb laugh and is sometimes too loud and overly enthusiastic and not tactful and is very horny um, as well. <laughs> um, and, and I know some, I did read somewhere that, I mean, Mozart, I think in reality was prone to raunchy jokes and he did write at least one piece whose title translates to lick my ass. So yeah. that was real. We have an article. Uh, I found an article about that and I will post it on the uh, awesome movie your Facebook page um, at some point in time. But yeah, I think that also shows again, the complexity of the, com the character and why maybe his work wasn't, um, appreciated till 50 years later right because i mean you know in the modern sense if you look at like punk music from like the 70s right even something like the ramones who were considered like very bass and everything like now get their due as like one of the greatest rock bands of all time and and mozart was kind of like the punk musician of uh of this time period so it's a good complex character and also lick my ass would have been a good punk name for a song <laughs> it sure. probably exists. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and Mozart too, obviously he didn't, you know, he died at age 35. He didn't live long enough to become this kind of mellowed elder statesman of music. You know, he's just like any rock star who dies young, he's forever the young rebellious guy because that's what he was when he died. Yeah, he didn't get to do his uh, Woody Guthrie cover album. That's a true, true story there, <laughs> he, he, ne he never worked with Rick Rubin. It did not happen. <laughs> All those things that could have been. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you're you're right. There's good complexity, and, and Hulse was nominated for all the awards uh, alongside of F. Murray Abraham. When F. Murray Abraham won the award, I mean, there was that quote from the Oscars where he said, like, the only thing missing tonight is Tom Hulse standing here next to me. So, you know, the respect um, that they had for each other is pretty cool. So. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, as as good as Tom Hulse in this is in this movie, if he's up against F. Murray Abraham, he's going to lose all those awards. Well, and Josh, that's why he is my favorite of all the F. Murrays. All right. Keep, keep doubling down on that bit. But he's great. Who do you yeah, like? F. Murray Thornsburg? Come on. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Underrated guy. I mean, we, we have to say F. Murray Abraham is fantastic in this movie. And, and he, I think, is what makes it work. Like Salieri is that complex character as written. But it would be easy, I think, for an actor to overplay in one direction or another and I turn agree. him into this villain or just turn him into this kind of pathetic figure. And... F. Murray Abraham gets all of those shades of that, where he's nasty and mean, but also insecure and sad and pathetic and all of those things at once. And that all comes across. Right. The jealousy and, you know, and also the appreciation for the genius. Right. Uh, one fun thing I read about Tom Hulse is uh, he used John McEnroe, the Hall of Fame tennis player, the, the famous mood swings of John McEnroe uh, on the tennis court as inspiration for his performance. You cannot be serious. <laughs> Thank you for that John McEnroe impression. <laughs> we can add to your list. That wasn't really an impression. Well, but Josh, I think yes. we kind of we've we've covered this, right? What do you think? Should we rate this thing? Uh, yeah. Do we want? Do you have anything it? else that you wanted to talk uh, about? I don't think. I mean, I don't know. In any any of the other performances, uh, Elizabeth Barrage. Do we want to mention who? Plays, I liked Elizabeth uh, Barrage. Wife? She was all right. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. I think she's she's good here. She was a last minute replacement for Meg Tilly, who was uh, dropped out right before shooting. Injury. She got an injury. Yes. Was injured. Um. And uh. You know, she's certainly not as well known, but I think she holds her own. And I have to say, I know. Uh. He's a problematic to say the least. Yeah, he's good. He's a good actor. We Je Jeffrey Jones is really good in this movie. He's yeah, really yeah. entertaining. And he just, he plays that emperor as, again, I think this is goes back to Foreman's casting choices is like, not in any way what you think of as an Austrian emperor who was the brother of Marie Antoinette. And the way that Jeffrey Jones plays it as this kind of awkward, nerdy guy who's just really into music, I, I thought that was really good. So I'll have to give him for this performance and not other aspects of his life, a lot of credit. <laughs> no, no, not, I mean, look, he had a great acting decade in the 80s, yes, right? Yes, we he did. mostly know him from the principal as Ferris Bueller, but yeah, he, uh, problematic is, is, as we've said, a good word for many of the things, including Jeffrey Jones, and you can go read about that on your own. Yeah, so that's the only other performance, and now if you wanna, should we rate it out of, uh, 
I don't know, five uh, Mozart fart jokes? Five pink wigs. There you go. That's a better one. Five yeah. pink wigs. What do you want to give? I give it a, a four and it borders on four and a half, but it's four wow. for me. Yeah. Four pink you know, wigs. I was going to give it a three and a half, but I feel like there's, it's so good. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to give it a four out of five. It's just a really enjoyable, like it, it fires on all cylinders as you know, yeah. Jason would say, like, I think. And I can't stress enough the beauty of the technical stuff, which really shines here is. As Dave mentioned, it would be nice to see that on a big screen. Yeah, maybe someday we can do that. So Dave, what, what would you want to give this out of five pink wigs? I'm also going with four pink wigs, guys. All right. So a good movie. I think we can all agree. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Amadeus. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we are talking about the Best Picture Oscar winner, Amadeus. And uh, we've talked about a few things related to its legacy, uh, particularly the director's cut that Milos Forman uh, created in 2002, which is about 20 extra minutes, uh, is 20 minutes longer and is now essentially the only version available for people to watch unless you put in a lot of extra effort. And Which we did. We did. We did. And we thought it was important to see the movie that audiences saw in 1984, because that's specifically what we're talking about here. And, and the movie that won Best Picture. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's the movie that all the Academy voters watched and voted on. Um, but anyone who sees it now is almost certainly going to see that newer version. And, and again, from Dave, Dave's perspective, having seen that, it sounds like it didn't really lose anything necessarily. Yeah. Not that I could tell certainly. And, you know, like I said, the bit, my biggest fear going in is that it was going to drag. And since it didn't, that's a success for me. Yeah. And I, it just, to me, it, 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 it goes to that, whether it's good or not, that newer, longer version the idea that the directors or studios will come in and tinker with a movie and somehow erase the original. I mean, uh, George Lucas and Star Wars yeah. is obviously the the most talked about example of that. But actually, in in my initial effort to figure out how we could see the older version, I stumbled across uh, a website that is mainly devoted to the uh, various fan efforts to uh, recreate the original cuts of the Star Wars films, which are, is very extensive. And someone on there, they had a section devoted to these cuts of other films like that. And someone on there had created a fan edit of Amadeus that uses the uh, sort of cleaned up, more pristine uh, picture and sound of the Blu-ray release, which the original cut has never been released on Blu-ray. And he, this fan had then edited out all of the uh, additions from the director's cut. So are there some hardcore Amadeus heads who are really into that? Yes, it's weird that Mozart would still have fans today. No, I'm well, just I mean, yes, yes. No, I know. I, I think it's cool. You know, hey, man, if that's how you want to spend your time and recreate <laughs> and, and bumping up a technical, you know, picture that deserves its due merit. I think that's a that's good, man. Good. Right. And I think the point there from this person's perspective was like this this original version has never gotten the uh, attention that the director's cut version has gotten in terms of being restored and being upgraded to, you know, 4K or whatever it is. So. And it, yeah, if you can clean the sound and the brightness of those costumes, imagine, imagine that, man, that's, that's got to be sensory, like just overload in the best possible way. Yeah. So I would hope that at some point in the future, it'll be worthwhile for, for the studio to release that original version again in a, in as impressive uh, uh, restoration as the director's cut currently exists. But who knows if that'll ever happen. Milos Forman, I think, has one of the best connect rates also for his movies. 33 Oscar nominations, 13 wins, 33 Golden Globe nominations, and 14 wins. Pretty damn good. We mentioned one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, People versus Larry Flint, if you haven't seen it, is a masterpiece. And uh, Josh, when we talk about the Czech New Wave, you and I saw the Fireman's Ball back in the day. Very interesting film. It is, yeah. I mean, that's how he started his career in what was, at the time, Czechoslovakia before moving into Hollywood. And as I was saying, he didn't make that many movies. He made maybe five or six movies in Czechoslovakia and another six or seven movies in Hollywood, and that was it. 
He only made three movies after Amadeus. Um, the the people versus Larry, I believe. Oh no, maybe it's four. Sorry, but I <laughs> I noted down three of them because they're all biopics. Uh, the people versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, of course, about Andy Kaufman, starring Jim Carrey, and his last film from two thousand six called Goya's Ghosts, uh, about the painter, uh, the Spanish painter, which is not very good. But um, he definitely stayed in this mode of the unconventional approach to telling true stories. If you read about him, you'll find he had all these stories and films in development, maybe more so than some other filmmakers that we read about that just never made it across the finish line for one reason or another. And some of them sounded interesting. There was one about like a love story between an American and a Japanese set in the world of sumo wrestling, but he refused to make compromises to the sumo federation. And so they had to scrap it. So, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's, you know, we talk about major figures. He's, he's one of the biggies. Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously he had an incredibly important uh, and influential career. And yeah, if you could pick out uh, one of his movies, whether it's this or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or People versus Larry Flint and say, just from that alone, he's got- That's amazing. uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's impressive. And again, for someone who didn't make that many movies, for so many of them to have that impact is, is quite astounding. It's interesting, Josh, that, you know, both F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse had this reputation of like, well, after Amadeus, they disappeared or, you know, they didn't, they couldn't sustain. And, you know, I remember, Le- or I didn't remember, but I read about how Leonard Malton called uh, called it F. Murray Abraham syndrome when you have a success at a young age and then you can't sustain it. It's all bullshit, to be honest with you. They're both hugely successful. Tom Hulse went on as a producer of many shows on theater and F. Murray Abraham uh, has had a huge decade, a huge last 20 years. So and he was uh, and he's won a ton of awards in theater or been nominated. They've all had great working careers. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is the fact that they especially Tom Hulse are maybe more successful in theater than in film and TV. And F. Murray Abraham works very steadily and is always good and has won awards. But he's almost always a supporting actor. He never became sort of like a movie star after being uh, in this movie, but he's always great. I mean, even now you watch something and, and if F. Murray Abraham shows up for two minutes, it's going to be great. Um, Inside Lewin Davis is like, that scene is so good. Yeah. That, go. yeah. that and Grand Budapest Hotel, like just yeah. he owns it, you know, and obviously Homeland, he got two Emmy nominations from there. So Yeah. And he's someone that people like the Coen brothers or Wes Anderson, they're, you're going to want to work with because he's such a amazing actor. And I find it kind of interesting. I'm not really a big fan of this, but the the show on Apple TV Plus currently uh, called Mythic Quest from uh, Rob McElhenney from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that takes place at a video game company. And F. Murray Abraham is a regular on that show playing a character who's actually quite like Salieri, who is supposed to be this sort of washed up science fiction author who was a big deal in the 1970s with his sci-fi novels and now has been kind of forgotten. And he's been hired by this video game company full of young, uh, hip people who uh, don't really know who he is, um, but he's been hired as like a story consultant on their video game. And he's all resentful of them for not appreciating his genius as this sci-fi writer. So it's goofy and and it's a comedy, but it's actually got a lot of parallels with Salieri. And also he does like comedy and is very adept at comedy. There's an interesting thing where he played one of the uh, fruits in the Fruit of the Loom commercials back in the day. And he quit because uh, he said he wasn't being taken seriously. And, um, you know, he said, he said, no one was taking my acting seriously. I figured if I didn't do it, then I'd have no right to the dreams I've always had. And then he just exploded, you know, with kind of this work. But then after that, he said he wanted to go back to comedy, which he did successfully as well. Um, it's interesting making those connections, Josh, because Tom Hulse uh, debuted on Broadway in Equus by Peter Schaefer in 1975. And now, um, and look, he was Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's in Parenthood. He's done some other stuff, obviously. But as a producer, it's interesting because he produces a lot of these musicals based on pop acts. He produced American Idiot and uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. So it's kind of interesting that he's uh, almost like picked up the reins of this, uh, of the thing he acted in, in a way. 
Right, right. And I think, again, because he's maybe because he's behind the scenes or because he's in theater and not on TV or in movies, people don't remember him. But certainly he's had quite a successful career. Yeah. Um, Won the Tony for Spring Awakening as the lead producer, which is another one of those music, uh, pop music, you know, jukebox things. Right. I mean, winning a Tony, that's, you know, that's not falling into obscurity by any means. Um, so screw you, Leonard Malton. Leonard Malton, right? Is that is that, is that who you said it was? I mean, yeah, you know, I think he's dead, but you know, from beyond the Le- grave. Leonard Leonard Malton is definitely not dead. F- he's R- alive and well and on Twitter. Oh, yes. and, didn't, and we talked about him in uh, in the Gremlins episode because of his harsh words for them, and then how he read it and played was willing to joke about it in Gremlins too. But yeah, no, Leonard Malton is is great. He's always I go to the TCM festival every year and he's always there introducing movies and he's a big proponent of classic uh, film. So definitely don't screw you, Leonard Malton, but he was wrong about F. Murray Abe. And I was wrong about him being dead. Sorry, Leonard Malton. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Barrage is another one who, you know, she's doing fine, but is certainly not a star, works kind of sporadically now and is married to Kevin Corrigan, which I, I just thought was a random, interesting, another huh. uh, character Good actor. Character. Who would have fit well in this film? He totally would have. Yeah. And Salieri got a bit of a boost out of this film, who who was, as we see here, uh, basically forgotten. And there was a bit of a resurgence in interest in his music, um, including now an annual, or at least at some point was an annual Salieri Opera Festival in Len- Leniago. I don't know. I probably mispronounced that in Italy, which is his hometown. So uh, good for him, you know, maybe from beyond the grave, Salieri was happy to uh, get some acknowledgement. And, and as we said, we we think there was historically a mutual respect between these two, not not this per, per se jealousy. It could be that Salieri was like, dude, this guy's just way better and I love him and I'm going to support him. You know, we don't know. We weren't. There. Right. Right. I mean, the relationship here and certainly the degree to which it's it's has that animosity, I think is very much exaggerated. But again, that's okay. It works in the film and it makes the film interesting and entertaining. Um, and the play, despite what I said about it being kind of forgotten, it has been revived. Uh, in 1999, it was revived and got two Tony nominations. And it was also revived again fairly recently in 2016. So people do still remember that play, but I think the movie has certainly become a far bigger deal than the play. I uh, when we were talking about this F. Murray Abraham syndrome, I love his quote about it, where he he says the Oscar is the single most important event of my career. I have dined with kings, shared equal billing with my idols, lectured at Harvard and Columbia. If this is a jinx, I'll take two. <laughs> I can hear that. I know you're not doing an impression there, but I can definitely I can't do hear. I can yeah. hear that resonating in his voice. Yeah. Um. The last thing I wanted to mention for the legacy is, of course, Rock Me Amadeus by Falco, um, which came out in 1985, inspired by this movie, and which, until that day when I watched the movie with my mom, I was 100% certain was in this movie. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, And and one wonders, like, would they have found a place for it if it was out by then? Because we've talked about, obviously they wouldn't have. Let's move on. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. It really wouldn't. Like as as anachronistic as certain elements of this yeah, movie yeah. are, it would not. It would not have fit at all. But I was so certain that as I was, I, that's the one thing I do remember is like watching this movie and thinking, when are they going to play Rock Me Amadeus? And it never happens. Were you like, come and rock me, Amadeus? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? Where? Where is it? Maybe it's in the director's cut. Where is this song? Right. Um, yeah. So, anything else on the uh, legacy of this movie, Jason? That you want to add? Uh, I think um, I just want to wear those clothes. <laughs> I look forward to that. I want to see you in those clothes. I would love and to be on stage wearing those clothes. To be yes, honest. I think, you know, maybe we can get a revival of Amadeus in Las Vegas and we can cast Jason as the emperor. I think you would really yes. just kill that part, honestly. Hopefully, thank you. You're just comparing me to the Emperor based on the character and not the uh, actor's personal behavior. Of, <laughs> of course not. Of course not. I don't think we need to give that any more attention. So. <laughs> no, but it, I, even if, I, you know, uh, obviously I hope to get back on stage and do comedy at some point in time again when that lends itself to it. I'd like to wear this type of costume doing comedy, but I think people will be like, what is he wearing? Why is he? Wearing? And they're not paying 
paying attention to any of my jokes. Maybe if you did it in character as like an 18th century stand-up comedian and just told a bunch of jokes about Salieri and Mozart. And, and then and then after each joke, I did the Mozart. <laughs> Perfect. I knew that was coming. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> So that is Amadeus, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, You can follow us on social media. We're on social media. As I said, uh, we will put up the face uh, on our Facebook page the article about Lick My Ass, and that is uh, just at Awesome Movie Year. And also, our Instagram is Awesome Movie Year. We're at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Even Salieri would want no part of. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm at joshbellhateseverything.com, which does have a couple things from the end of uh, 2020. So good for me. <laughs> also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And while I'm no Mozart, I might as well plug my music. Check out bydavidrosen.com. <laughs> And uh, what do we have in our next episode, Jason? Well, let's just keep going with this hot streak that Dave's on. Plug away, Dave, because it's your pick next time, baby. Ah, yes. Well, my pick is a movie I could not let us finish the 1984 season without covering, and that is Ghostbusters. So tune in next time for Ghostbusters, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.